there before you at the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. I was doing a wedding not too long ago, and I got halfway through, and I looked out, and I had totally told everyone that they could sit down after the bride walked in. Halfway through the wedding. I'm glad I didn't do that today with you guys. Um, Let's look at verse 1 of this. 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped out at Rephidim, but there was no water to drink. Now, I'm sure if Rod was preaching, he's our resident Israeli expert, he would have some fascinating things to tell us about what it's like to walk around in the desert of sin, or exactly how Rephidim is brought in in Jeroboam's life and somebody else's life, and how it all ties together in this beautiful way. But we got to play to our gifts, okay? And Rod knows Israel like Michigan State knows the Big Ten Championship. Yeah? Don't tell Rod I said that either, please. Seriously, he'll kill me. Um, For me, I don't have that gifting, but I can paint pictures with words, or so I've been told. So let me paint you guys a picture of what it's like in Rephidim, all right? Rephidim is hot. That's it. Like, Rephidim is like crazy desert hot, okay? So I want you to remember that. That's going to be important in just a second. When I say Rephidim equals, I want you guys to think hot, like mad hot, desert hot, hot, okay? So before we get to that part, though, I want to give you guys just a quick apologetic thought, okay? When I look at a room this size, I know for certain that there's people in here probably who are wrestling with doubt, people who are saying, can I really trust that this is God's word? Can I really trust that this has something for my life? So whenever I get the opportunity, I like to speak into that just a little tiny bit. One of the things here, we read things like Rephidim, desert of sin, Israel going from here to there at this specific time, and we just gloss over them unless we're rod. And then we love them. But there's something so unique about this. There's something so unique about Christianity in that it puts all of these details in there. Christianity is rooted in real people, at real places, at specific times in human history. And what that does, and why that's important, is it's falsifiable. Christianity is not afraid to throw out historical claims. Other religions don't do this. Where If you proved that Israel wasn't in Rephidim, the whole thing starts to crumble. And these things were written within just a few decades. These things were written oftentimes where people were still alive who had experienced these things, who had seen these things. Christianity doesn't shy away from making bold historical claims. And when we read these historical claims, don't read them just like pure history, okay? Don't read them like you'd read Napoleon's conquests or things like that. Read the historical claims of the Bible with care and read them realizing that God is teaching us something. He's painting with human history. He's giving us a theology of who he is and who we are. So when we're reading here, we're here in Rephidim, read it with that kind of a light. Rephidim, this is the same spot, or this is the last spot. This in Numbers 33 makes it clear that right after this, they're going to Sinai. This is the last stop before they hit Sinai, site of the Ten Commandments, site of everything. But they're in a place where the last sentence that we read was, where there is no water. What do we, what do, we do with that? Do you guys, how many of you guys have ever been camping? Let me see your hands. Only in Michigan would like every hand in the whole place go up. <laughs> All right, even if you haven't been camping, I'm pretty sure you know this. Camping 101 
is you don't set up camp where there is no water. You don't do it. You don't pitch your tent where there's no drinking water for you. That's kind of up there with building a car from scratch and just deciding not to put brakes in it. Or cooking a meal without bacon. Okay? You, you don't do it. Ever. By the way, I, I said this to my wife, and she immediately was like, don't say that. I don't want people thinking I cook with bacon every meal. That's gross. Um, so why would Israel do this? Why are they camped where there is no water? Why? Is it because they've been in Egypt for so long that they've just lost the art of being in the wilderness? Kind of like if we were to take some Manhattanites or some Londoners, sorry Neil, and drop them in the Sahara Desert and say, survive. They'd probably make some mistakes too. Is that what's going on here? I don't think so. That's not why they're making this mistake in camping here. They're camped where there is no water in this really poor spot because God told them to camp here. Remember, when the pillar of cloud moves, you move. When it stops, you stop and you make camp. God wants them to camp where it's hot, where it's uncomfortable, where they're dehydrated, where they're thirsty. Why? Why does God want them to do that? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. While you guys are turning there, just a quick thought. We have a testing God here. I mean, here, Genesis 22 makes it clear that he tests Abraham. James, in the New Testament, makes it clear that he's a tester. What do we do with that? We've got to ask why. Why is he testing? Why is a really good question when you're reading the Bible to ask? Always ask the Bible why. Why is this happening? What's God hoping to accomplish here? When you're talking to your spouse, don't ask why questions. It makes them defensive, okay? That's counseling 101. But why is he doing it? Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. It says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. God's testing so that Israel can know what's in its heart. What's in their hearts? That's the external situation, and that's where we transition to the internal. What gets exposed? What in Israel's heart becomes visible as a result of this testing. So turn back over there to Exodus 17. In verse 1, at the very end, it says, They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Pause here for a second. They're, They're now putting the Lord to the test. This, was, this started off with God testing Israel, but now Israel, rather than pass the test or humbly admit that they failed it, they've actually turned it into a bi-directional testing, and they've fired a test right back at God. And verse 3 continues, But the people were thirsty for water there, a.k.a. they didn't listen to Moses when he said, Don't put the Lord to the test. And they grumbled against him. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Let's stop there for a second. When I was reading through this passage kind of over and over again, I was reminded of this play that comes out of World War II in the wake of it. And it's a really interesting play, and I wasn't sure if I should share it or not. And then I read um, this book by a guy that I really like. His name's Edmund Clowney. 
And old Ed actually quotes the exact same play. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take that as a sign. Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this to you guys. So this play comes out of World War II. And it comes out of Germany trying to figure out, what, what do we do with the Holocaust? And who's responsible? And it's not a normal play where the actors stay up here on stage. They actually get down and they start walking among the people. And they start talking to the audience members. And i got to watch that with the mic. Huh? <laughs> and they ask somebody. They stop and they just... This is really uncomfortable, but they ask him the question of like, are you responsible for the Holocaust? And the person says, no, no, I'm not responsible for the Holocaust. And they go around and they ask the housewife, are you responsible for the Holocaust? No, 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 no. They ask the businessman, are you responsible for the Holocaust? No, I'm not responsible. And as they go along, they start to unearth some things where that businessman, for instance, he ships steel. And so he knew about the train cars full of Jews, but he didn't stop them. And he says, yeah, okay, maybe I'm a little at fault, but the blame really is with other people. It's with the soldiers. And the soldiers say, we were just following orders. So yeah, we're a little responsible, but we're not fully responsible. And by the end of the play, someone in the back yells out, it's God's fault. God is responsible for the Holocaust. And pretty soon, everyone starts to chime in. Yeah, it's God's fault. It's God's fault. And so they grab God and they put him on trial. And they find him guilty of the Holocaust. And they sentence him to become a Jew himself, to know what it feels like, and to walk around the earth and to be tired and to be hungry and to be betrayed and to be beaten and to be stripped naked and ultimately to be executed. Now that's a powerful play. It gets one thing wrong. Its theology is a little bit off. And so let me correct that so that we can focus on what is important, okay? God doesn't die on the cross because of his sin. He dies on the cross because of our sin, okay? Jesus doesn't die for God's sin on the cross. He dies because we blow it and we're at fault. He's a pure, holy, perfect God. But what is powerful about that play is it captures human nature, that when something goes wrong, when something is bad, we, yeah, we might be a little bit at fault, but we blame shift higher and higher and higher. So let me try to expose what's going on in that blame shifting that's going on with Israel, okay? Deuteronomy says, we, we already talked about it, it exposes the heart. That's what this testing is for. And there's a pattern that goes on here, and I don't think it's explicitly stated in the text, but it's all throughout scripture, and you can see it really clearly here. A guy who's much smarter than I am, his name's Paul David Tripp. Uh, He's a counselor. He came up with this thing. He calls it the slippery slope of idolatry. And I've got some PowerPoints. I want to go through this with you guys. But before we do, there's that PowerPoint. When I made this, I felt like this is really very clearly PowerPoint. It felt like, like 1991 to me. But I think it's really helpful. And I want you guys to pay attention not just for how we relate with God, but how we relate with others, how you relate with your classmates, your friends, your spouses, your kids, your parents. I think it's all tied up oftentimes in this really slippery pattern that goes on. It's based off the fact that in conflict, we oftentimes don't look at the other person and all the good that they've done. We just focus on the negative that they've done. And so here we see Israel... And their pants are literally like drooping with the weight of Egyptian gold that's in their pockets. And they're far removed from the crack of the slave master's whip. And they're far removed from bricks without straw and having to go sneak off in the secret to give birth because you're afraid that if you cry out, the Egyptians will come and execute your baby. 
God has delivered them from all of that stuff, and yet they want his head. And they're grumbling and quarreling against him. So really in conflict, we focus not just on the good too that a person's done, but also James 4 makes it really clear that when we quarrel and fights break out, it's because of the evil desires that war within our own hearts. So here's this slippery slope to help us understand our, our hearts. The first one is, I desire. Okay, This is really simple. It could be a bad, sinful desire. It could be a very good desire. Israel desires water. Is there anything wrong with desiring water? No. God made us frail beings that need water. We need it to survive. There's nothing wrong with desiring it. However, what happens is desires start to twist in our hearts. And they change, and they stop being just desires that we hope for. They become demands. And so it becomes, I demand. At some point, it stops being optional. It becomes an entitlement thing of, I will get this at any cost, and you owe me this. Demand kills polite asking. And so Israel doesn't just ask God. Psalm 81 makes it really clear that if they had just opened their mouth, God would have filled it. But no, instead they demand They go even beyond that. This today looks a little bit like kind of the, oftentimes these are unspoken demands, but they look things like, I work hard to provide for this family. I work hard all the time. Why should I have to come home and do housework too? Demands like, God, I've been really good lately. I've been really good. You kind of owe me this. It's small. You owe it to me though. I have to buy these new clothes. I mean, I got this new job and I need to look professional. I, I need these new clothes. Or again, I bring home the money, so I make all the big financial decisions. These things become demands in our heart. And at some point, we become disappointed. The demand goes unmet. This thing had to happen. It was supposed to happen. It was owed to me, and it didn't. And so I become disappointed. I become angry. I become bitter. And my heart does something unique. My heart, at least, always goes to this. The next one. I judge. I look around and I say, who's to blame? Who's at fault here? And I go through a little mental trial. They don't even know that I'm doing it. But I decide that they're guilty. Or I decide that I'm guilty. And I blame myself. And if you look back at verse 2. There's trial language. There's this idea of judgment and this idea of a trial right here in the text. It says, so they quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? English doesn't capture this, okay? I I want you to have full confidence in your English Bibles. They're great, absolutely read them, love them, they're true. But there isn't a word in English that captures this. This idea, this word in Hebrew is yareb. And the meaning behind it literally means to quarrel or to bring legal charges. Even in Exodus, this is one of the primary uses of the word is the formal trial where someone goes before a judge. In Deuteronomy, Moses makes it clear he needed to appoint other people because he couldn't hear all of the trials, all of the disputes among the people and be a a fair judge for all of them. He needed other people to help. That's the word, Yareb. Even the word Meribah comes from this, that this whole day is named after. So the people 
are putting Moses on trial because that's the closest they can get to God. Moses represents God to them, and they can't get him. Moses makes it clear, why are you putting the Lord to the test? It's him that they were really after. They weren't provided for. They had this desire. It became a demand. It wasn't met, and they were ready to stone Moses. And that's the last one. I punish. In this case, grab Moses. String him up. Let's throw stones at him. Let's kill him. Sometimes it's a hot anger like that. Sometimes it's a cold anger in our hearts where we just distance ourselves. We get a little passive aggressive with the other person. I think some of us in here live this cycle all the time. I think I live this cycle with people. I think some of us in here do this with God. And at the risk of being really real with you guys, I want to actually tell you about a time in my life where I did this. And that means that I have to take you guys back kind of to one of the darkest times in my entire life. Uh, Some of you guys may know this, some of you guys might not. My father was an alcoholic drug addict my entire life. Abusive man, but he was my dad. And I loved him like crazy. And when I got into seminary, the weight of all of his decisions and his life choices really started to come crashing down. And he got hepatitis C from all of the needle drugs, and he got cirrhosis of the liver, um, both of which attack your liver, and he went downhill really, really quickly. And I would make the drive from Chicago to Detroit over and over again, and man, it was, it was a gut-wrenching time. And I wrestled with the fact that as a kid, I'd always hoped he was going to get clean. He was going to become the father that I hoped that he was going to be. He's suddenly, he's going to be a dad to me. And I had to wrestle with the fact that that wasn't going to happen. He was never going to be the dad that I wanted him to be. And I had to wrestle with something that was maybe even harder of, he would never meet my wife. He'd never get to hold his grandchildren, Lord willing, if God gives them. And it killed me. But I managed over those weeks to feel like I really kind of worked through some of that stuff. And I remember driving to see him on the last day that I would ever see my dad alive. And I knew it was going to be the last weekend that I'd get a chance to see him. I remember talking with God in advance and just saying like, God, okay, I can accept that I'll never have my dad. I can accept that he'll never be the father that I hoped. I can accept that I'm losing him, that my kids will never meet him, that my wife will never meet him. But I hardly even have a picture of this man. Let me just, let me get a voice recording. It's something so small. I can can have all of that stuff, or I can let go of all that stuff, but let me just have this voice recording, not for me, but let him record a message for the wife that he'll never meet. Let him record a message for the kids that he'll never hold. And I, I told God, you don't owe me this, which was a lie. I felt like he owed me it. I felt like... If I'm giving up all of this and just asking for a voice recording that's not even for me, like that's the least you can do. And I drove down there, and I saw my dad, and it was an awful visit, just the worst visit I've ever had. Your mind goes when your liver goes, and he was delusional, and he was angry, and he was mad all the time at me. And the last image that I have of him is him refusing to even look at me, and then finally conceding and looking up at me with pure hatred. And I got in my car with that searing image as the last thing that I would ever see of my dad. And I drove and I wept and I, I came to this point where 
I went ahead and I grabbed that voice recorder and I picked it up and I didn't get him recording any kind of message to anyone. He wouldn't do it. But I got a recording of him just talking gibberish, basically. And I pushed play on the recorder and all you could hear was the Spurs game from his neighbor's TV. I didn't even have that. And I'll tell you, I didn't get hot angry with God. There were no curse words that flew out. But I went through that cycle so fast. And I started to distance myself from God. I started to not really want to spend time with him. To not really want to invest in my relationship with him. I was angry with God. And it took me a long time to even realize that I was angry with God. I was going through the same thing that Israel's doing right here. And I wonder, I don't want to project my baggage on all of you guys. But I wonder if there aren't people in this room today that are angry with God about something. It could be over something really legitimate here. The Israelites aren't angry with God because their house isn't a thousand square feet larger. They're not angry with God because they're driving a Volkswagen instead of a Beamer. They're angry with God because they don't have water. And for us, it could be any number of things. God, I I never expected to marry the perfect spouse, but I at least expected him to stick it out with me. God, I never thought I'd live forever, but cancer at 30? God, I've prayed every day for my kids. Every day I pray for them. And they continue to make poor choice after poor choice after poor choice. God, I expect to suffer, but being abused as a kid? God, I can say goodbye to my dad, but why couldn't I just get that voice recording? Are you mad at God today? It's a tough question and one we don't ever ask ourselves. If that's you, I want you to pay really close attention to the last section. We've talked about the external. We've talked about the internal. Now let's talk about the eternal. God's response. The eternal God's response to these angry, grumbling people. Okay, the people are furious. They want God on trial, right? They go through Moses. Moses goes before God. And now I want us to read God's response. Starting in verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you at the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. You guys see it? You guys see the amazingness of this response? I missed it. I missed it for years. I've read this passage and I missed how amazing this truly is. Look at how he provides the water. He could have made it rain. He does that with Elijah, right? He just makes it rain. He could have made him dig a well. He does that with the patriarchs. He could have just said, you know what, guys? Pack up and move. We're going to go to this spot with a spring. He could have done it any way. And for a long time, I read this passage, and I thought, maybe God just arbitrarily says, like, ah, I've done that stuff. That's not quite miraculous enough. I want to show you guys that it's me. 
So, ah, stones, stones. Okay, stones don't have water in them. I'm going to have you hit the stone. Water's going to gush out. You'll know it's me, and you'll know it's miraculous. But let's look at it again. God's showing them who he is. He's showing them his character. He's showing them what is to come. Here's what's going on here. He says, all right, people, you failed the test. You guys bombed it. In fact, we didn't read them today, but if you remember from last week, there's three tests. And they fail them all. All right, Moses, they want to put me on trial? Okay. The people are guilty. You know it. I know it. Why don't you come with me? Grab your staff. And I bet Moses is just thinking like, all right, I know, I know what this baby can do. I've seen it. And he grabs that staff and he's like, all right, go out in front of the people. And I think Moses just walks on out there, all right? And he's like, grab with you 70 elders. Well, that's a little unique, but all right, I'll grab the 70 elders. They can come with me. And then I want you to go on a little walk. I want you to go to Horeb. I think Moses stopped and like, Horeb? That's, that's 12 miles away. Why would God have him walk 12 miles when there's stones in Rephidim? Please tell me we know why he had to walk 12 miles. Maybe this will help. Horeb goes by another name all throughout the Bible in many places. Sinai. Sinai, site of the Ten Commandments, where there's thunder and there's lightning and earthquakes and the mountain is so holy that you can't even touch it. That Sinai, the mountain that represents God himself. But that's all a chapter away. So what, what would Horeb have meant to Moses? Does anyone know where it comes up earlier on in this passage or this book? Abraham. Good. What about with Moses. Turn to Exodus 3. Actually, don't even turn there. I'll just read it to you guys, all right? You can turn there if you want. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. There's a famous passage. His father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. That's... Horeb. I think by now, Moses is starting to understand, and I bet he's just quaking. Seventy elders, the staff, Horeb. This is the trial that the people wanted. God is giving the people what they wanted. The staff represents God's judgment. It was used in trials. Isaiah 30 talks about it. The 70 elders, they're the witnesses there to see the dispensing of justice The people are going to stand before God at his holy mountain and they're doomed. And now the twist. Verse 6. I, this is God speaking, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. God is going to stand before Moses. Okay, God doesn't stand before mankind. Mankind stands before God in judgment. God never stands before mankind to be judged. Moses, I'm going to stand right here in front of you. And I want you to strike the rock 
so that the people can drink. In other words, Moses, I want you to hit me. I'll take the blow. Hit me, Moses, so that the people can be saved. I bet Moses had to be shocked. I bet he had 12 miles to ask himself all kinds of questions, second-guessing this. Can the guilty really go unpunished? Can a holy God really be struck? Of course, we all know the answer to this. Because God isn't just giving the Israelites water to drink here. He's teaching them. He's showing them who he is and what he's ultimately going to do for them. And we all know that he is ultimately going to be struck centuries later on a Roman cross because we fail the test and because we are guilty. That's why sometime later Moses hits the rock a second time and God says, that's it, you lost the promised land. And if you read that like I did, I think, man, that's really punitive, God. Like, so he was supposed to speak to it and he hit it and he loses the promised land? Look at all this dude's done for you. It's because God is struck one time for the sins of all mankind and it's in his way, in his timing. He's never struck twice and he's never struck at our whim or our anger. 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it really clear if you think this is a stretch. 1 Corinthians 10.4 that the rock that accompanied the Israelites, the rock was Christ. This is a pre-incarnate prefiguring of Christ showing us what's to come. Look at the last sentence of this entire passage. And he called this place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled with God and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Isn't that the question we all wrestle with when we suffer? God, where are you? Are you with us or not? Are you seeing this? Do you care? God, are you with us or not? And you may be mad at him today. You may have come in here feeling desperate and in need of water. But my prayer today is that you guys will look long and hard, that all of us will look long and hard at the rock that was struck in our place. That God takes our guilty verdict and he wears it himself. And we ask, is the Lord among us or not? And he answers, come, all who are thirsty and elsewhere, and I will give you living water, water from the rock, that you may never thirst again. The whole Bible wraps up and this sentence is in there. The spirit of the bride says, come. And let, us, let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take this free gift of the water of life. We're going to have communion today. And the table's open for everyone who recognizes that you yourself are guilty. And that the only way for you to be rescued from that guilt was that there needed to be a rock that was struck on your behalf. I want to close with just a, a poem here. It's written in the wake of World War I at people who saw some of the bloodiest, nastiest fighting, the most just atrocious things in human history. And they're wrestling with, how do I make sense of this? How do I go on? How, when you've seen so much suffering and death, can you continue? 
And really, this poem is capturing what Hebrews 4 tells us. Hebrews 4 basically says that we get our help in our time of need by looking to a God who has experienced temptation and suffering and knows what it's like. And that high priest is interceding for us. And here's the poem. It's called Jesus of the Scars. It says, If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In other words, when we look at all the suffering that we've seen, and we look up at these still heavens, it just doesn't seem to jive. We need a God who knows this and understands this. And it closes, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray. God, there isn't a God that has wounds, but you alone. And God, those wounds were inflicted by us and for us. And I pray that as we suffer in this world, we will look to a God who knows suffering, who knows pain, and has experienced it on our behalf. You're amazing, and we're humbled to call you our God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.